0: Welcome to the May edition of the JNMP podcast. I'm Harriet Vickers and coming up...
1: One of the findings was really that if you're making an error in knowing the year or the month, well, that is, that is reasonably predictive of a problem.
0: I'm sure at some point most people have forgotten the day of the week or maybe even got the month wrong. So how much can these simple answers regarding time tell us about someone's cognitive state? Dr. Sean O'Keefe describes how temporal orientation is, and should be, used in assessing delirium and dementia in hospital. But at first, recent advances in frontotemporal dementia. What do we now know about the syndrome's clinical, genetic and pathological heterogeneity? Dr. Jonathan Rohrer from the Dementia Research Centre Institute of Neurology London talks us through his review.
2: So um, the term frontotemporal dementia... Um, FTD, um, often taken to mean a, a clinical syndrome with a number of um, particular subtypes. And the key subtypes are a behavioral variant, um, which presents with one or more of a number of uh, changes in behavioral personality, such as apathy, disinhibition, uh, change in appetite, or loss of empathy. And then there are two key language variants, uh, which are known as semantic dementia, often presenting with um, a language impairment, a fluent aphasia, and uh, loss of comprehension. And then a uh, non-fluent aphasia known as um, PNFA, or progressive non-fluent aphasia, which presents with uh, speech production um, impairments. And these are the key variants, but they overlap with um, a number of motor syndromes. So uh, two atypical Parkinsonian syndromes, corticobasal syndrome, uh, and uh, progressive supranuclear palsy. Um, And also there's overlap with uh, motor neuron disease um, or ALS. The term uh, frontotemporal lobo degeneration, or FTLD, is often used to mean the pathological syndrome, and there are a number of pathological subtypes, and uh, the reason for the two terms is because there isn't really a, a clear one-to-one uh, clinico pathological correlations, um, and so we, we try and use those two terms just to distinguish the clinical syndrome and the, and the pathological syndrome.
0: Sure. And why did you feel that now was the, the time to do this review to look at the the clinical, the genetic, and and the pathological heterogeneity? How, why did you feel that this needed doing?
2: Uh, particularly in the the last few years, um, there've been a number of uh, new findings, and because of that, um, the. Uh, genetics and the pathology have become a, a little bit more uh, complicated. So for the uh, general neurologist, we wanted really to provide a, an overview of those new changes. So in genetics, um, there's been um, a new a gene found that's related to um, frontotemporal dementia, and that's a gene called progranulin. And then um, pathologically, uh, there are two new uh, proteins that uh, have been found to be associated with um, FTD, and they are um, a protein called TDP43 and another one called uh, FUS or um, FUS. Having found those, it's allowed us to try and refine our um, clinical pathological and clinical uh, genetic correlation to understand uh, the disease a a bit, bit, bit better but um, in some ways it's made us understand things uh, more, but in other ways it's knowing uh, that there are more genes and more proteins involved has, has complicated the criteria for uh, FTD, and so we thought that a, a review of all those changes in recent years would be useful.
0: So, so do you have um, a fixed classification of FTD, or is all this recent work sort of thrown it into disarray? Well,
2: there are, um, there are clinical uh, descriptive criteria of the clinical syndromes, um, and until recently, particularly for the three key clinical syndromes, we've been using the, the 1998 uh, NERI criteria, but uh, there's been an international uh, consortium of of FTD uh, research groups who have been trying to improve the uh, clinical criteria for, uh, particularly for the behavioural variants um, of frontotemporal dementia, and that is just currently being um, finalised at present. Um, separate to that, um, there are new uh, criteria for the pathology of um, of FTD. Um, and really, one of the uh, things, particularly for, for clinical researchers, is, is really trying to be able to link um, the, the clinical syndromes with the, with the underlying pathology, particularly because one of the most important things that will hopefully happen in the FTD field in the forthcoming years is the availability of um, disease-modifying therapies. Um, that will hopefully come to clinical trials. And so what we really need to be able to do is to develop better criteria and better um, biomarkers to be able to actually identify the underlying pathology of, of um, patients in life so that we know who, to, who can go in, into the uh, right trials.
0: And, and what about uh, diagnosis? Having looked at all the, the work that's been done so far and is, is ongoing, do you have any recommendations for improving this?
2: Well, I mean, I think the um, diagnosis now is um, uh, well traditionally has been has been uh, based on um, clinical assessments, a neuropsychological assessment, and then in more recent years with um, structural and sometimes functional um, imaging. Um, and I think what um, is likely to change over the next few years is to be able to move to uh, develop better um, biomarkers for the underlying disease. So um, uh, new research is looking at um, both serum and cerebrospinal fluid uh, biomarkers and uh, more detailed um, and neuroimaging methods to try and really move us into an area where we are um, being able to really um, make a, a genetic or pathological diagnosis um, in life rather than really just diagnosing uh, a clinical syndrome. It's the heterogeneity of the underlying uh, genetics and pathology for each of the clinical syndromes that makes it very difficult to be able to do trials in those uh, syndromes, particularly when um, when what we really need to know is, is actually what's, what's going on at the level of the, the gene or the cell. Um, and so I think probably the next few years we'll really see um, a huge um, move to being able to develop um, better diagnostic uh, biomarkers that will be useful for trials.
0: You've touched on some of these, but, but could you just sum up what, what are the areas that you'd, you'd like to see looked at now with, with regard to FTD? What directions would you like to see future research take?
2: Um, some of the work that we've been doing looking at longitudinal um, structural brain imaging um, will be very useful in terms of um, biomarkers for trials to see whether the the, the treatments actually working but um, Hopefully, what we will be doing is really being able to um, use either um, structural or um, uh, new um, PET imaging um, to be able to identify patients during life. And one of the um, most um, interesting bits of research in Alzheimer's disease in recent years has been, been the development of PET ligands that um, bind to amyloid. Um, In um, FTD, where the underlying um, abnormal proteins are tau, TDP43, and and FUS, it would be um, a huge uh, step forward if we developed um, ligands to be able to look at those using PET scans um, or developed um, uh, cerebrospinal fluid markers that could uh, tell us about those. But um, there's also um, really interesting research looking at um, possible Um, disease modifying therapies for patients with um, underlying tau pathology and also for patients with um, progranulin um, mutations. And really in the next few years, um, we'd really like to be able to to move into a a time when we are actually um, uh, trying to treat these um, conditions.
0: Jonathan Rohrer there on frontotemporal dementia. That review is May's editor's choice. So for more details, go to jnmp.bmj.com. And now, JNMP's patient's choice. Sean O'Keefe is at Merlin Park University Hospital. He's been researching how simple questions about time should be used to assess someone's mental state. So hello, Sean. Welcome to the JNMP podcast.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Um, Could you just tell me what really the impetus was behind the paper? Why did you decide to ask the questions that you did?
1: Well, checking orientation to time is is really a very well-established part of mental status testing in in hospitals and in the community, for that matter, where you ask patients, do they know the the year, the month, the day of the week, the date, and sometimes the time of the day? Uh, And it's very widely used, and yet we've always had a degree of uncertainty as to how you're to interpret mild or minor errors. Uh, for example, that there's never any doubt in knowing that there's a problem if a patient asked in 2011 says it's uh, 1976, for example, uh, it, it's much less clear how you interpret asking somebody uh, the date when they've been in hospital for a few weeks because, uh, as you know, when you're in that type of environment, you, you lose your usual cues, uh, the ones that would tell us all what the week it is because is—because are we're keeping an eye out for the weekend, for example. Uh, So so we've never been sure how to interpret some of these errors and the fear has always been that individual clinicians were making their own mind up, if you like, and that it would be helpful to look at it formally.
0: Great. And what what specifically did you want to achieve with the study? It seems you had some very practical outcomes that you wanted to ascertain.
1: Well, I guess there were were two particularly. The, The first is that clinicians do use these tests so we wanted to know how useful they actually were in in telling whether or not a patient had cognitive impairment uh, and in the hospital setting that generally means either an acute confusion uh, usually a delirium due to the medical illness or medications uh, or a chronic problem with cognition like uh, dementia, such as Alzheimer's disease the second question uh, was to, to look at something that's been suspected by people for many years namely that the degree of temporal disorientation might provide a very rough guide to the severity of dementia, so that somebody who, for example, got 2009 uh, for 2011 w- was better than somebody who got uh, 1956 for 2011. Uh, so we felt it was actually worth uh, looking at that as well in this paper.
0: Did you think that recognition of dementia and delirium in hospital patients was, was done particularly well? Was that, was that another aspect?
1: Well, I I think it's it's pretty well established that identification is is very poor. Uh, The most important is the failure to recognize delirium or acute confusion. And the reason that's important is because delirium is a sign uh, of acute illness and often the only presenting sign in older people. It's also well known that people miss those with dementia as well. So, So, no, there is indeed a problem with identification. There's also sometimes the opposite problem. Uh, with a tendency to, uh, if you like, to downgrade older people in particular, and to be prone to interpret minor errors as being a sign of, of serious problems with their cognition.
0: Right. Okay. And um, your your methods, in a nutshell, you, you took two hundred and sixty-two patients over sixty-five and assessed them firstly for for this temporal orientation, and secondly for for cognitive status. So so what were your results? I mean, if we start with these questions as a a guide to the the presence of dementia or delirium, what did you find here?
1: We found that orientation errors were strongly associated with uh, identification of cognitive impairment. What was particularly important was that that, uh, an error in the year and month were particularly helpful. Uh, Certainly for year was very sensitive as well as being very specific. The date in people who were in hospital was very unreliable. Uh, as as a guide to the presence of cognitive impairment. Uh, On the other hand there, people who knew the date when they were in hospital, uh, that was a good sign that they didn't have a problem, whereas an error in, in knowing the year or month was helpful in ruling it in. What was also clear was that in people with no cognitive impairment, that the longer they were in hospital, the less likely they were to get it right when asked about the day of the week and in particular the date.
0: Sure, Okay. I guess it's like at Christmas when people start to forget the day of the week because it just becomes the 26th or the 27th or Christmas Day and things like that.
1: Yeah, well, we certainly didn't do the the, the study around Christmas for exactly that reason because I I think we've always known that if you you didn't know it was Christmas Day then there's more likely a problem than not knowing it's the, the 12th of November or something that doesn't have the same significance. There's also the same problem in interpreting an error in not knowing the month around the change of month in a, a day or two either side of the start of the month one really shouldn't be over harsh on people
0: uh, who, who get it wrong Give them a bit of a break Yes yeah. <laughs> Sure, okay And and what about your results with using the orientation to to assess severity of dementia? What did you find there?
1: It, there was a, a, a strong relationship between in particular uh, a, a, an error in year and also in, in various additive scores as in, in the mini mental state exam so that the, the greater the error, the more likely you were to have a more severe dementia. So there are certainly many better ways of measuring the severity of dementia, but as a very, uh, if you like, quick and dirty measure, it, it mm. worked quite effectively.
0: So how how do you actually see questions like this being used in, in hospital, in a, in a practical way? How would you see them fitting into care, especially if they are sort of a quick and dirty way of doing things.
1: Many of us who have an interest in cognition have been frustrated over the years by our failure to educate our colleagues in in other areas and often junior doctors doing admissions of the importance of assessing cognition. The only area of cognition that is traditionally assessed by many people is orientation, but unfortunately it's not assessed terribly well and we we make a major impact we even got people to do the orientation items that they're already doing but to interpret it and document properly it's important to say where the errors were made and of what magnitude they were so I I think it's saying to people look you're very busy we appreciate you're not going to do detailed cognitive testing but if you are testing orientation at the time then, then please document what exactly the error that was made was and that'll be much more helpful In deciding whether or not to refer for a more detailed assessment and uh, one of the findings was really that if you're making an error in knowing the year or the month well that is that is reasonably predictive of a problem acute confusion or delirium uh, is one that changes quite a lot during hospitalization often people are very bad at the beginning and they'll gradually recover with time so if if temporal orientation is a, a reasonable measure of severity of dementia then the logical question is to say, could it also be used to monitor the severity and the the resolution, hopefully, of an episode of delirium? And and that's something we'd hope to do in the future.
0: What about cognitive tests, uh, which feature questions on temporal orientation? Uh, Do your findings have any implications for for the structure of these or or how they're used?
1: The the best established psychometric test is a test by Benton, who came up with an orientation score uh, the only problem with, with benton 's orientation score, which, which did work very well as a measure of severity of dementia in our group, was that it, it, it seems better designed for younger people, uh, but they capped the error score after getting the year round by six years, uh, whereas in our study of older hospital patients, people with, with severe dementia were actually getting it wrong by several decades, uh, so the scoring seemed overtly overly complicated. Uh, and our suggestion was that simply using the year error score was actually a a very reasonable substitute.
0: Great, good. I'm sure hospital staff will be pleased to hear that. That's all for this edition. Join us next time for psychotherapy and dizziness and what finger length ratio could tell us about ALS. Thanks for listening.
2: For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.